0: All right. Well, I'm excited to be here with you guys. I love Thanksgiving. It's one of my favorite holidays. There's just something about the combination of family, friends, food. It's just a wonderful mix of stuff. And uh, my heart this morning is, as we're leaning in and talking about Jesus being the bread of life, that we can even kind of hearken back to this awesome meal that we just had. And so I want you all to do something for me just a moment. I just want you to visualize, you're, you're back at the Thanksgiving table, that plate of food is in front of you. What was your favorite item that you ate on that plate? What was your favorite item? And then give me, just share with me a little bit. What was your favorite side? What was your favorite dessert? Like, this is, this is spiritual, what we're doing right now. You might think I'm just kind of joking around right now, I'm serious, what was your favorite thing that you ate? The best bite, Bill? The meat. The meat, going straight to the turkey. Prior. Cornbread. cornbread. I love it. That's a true Southern Thanksgiving right there if you've got cornbread on the table. All right, come on, I need a couple more. Cornbread, turkey, gravy, because that kind of covers everything, right? Yeah. All right, Levi, what do you got, buddy? Cranberry sauce. Nice. I like that. Good call. Give me two more. Kate. Turkey. Turkey. All right. We got two votes for turkey, Mabry. Turkey. turkey. Okay. All right. We got meat fans in our house. I'm raising them right. Yes. All right. Well, listen, I, I know we're just kind of having fun and joking with that, but Jesus evokes this image of bread. He, he's not, he doesn't want us picturing some like stale, old, kind of cardboardy, like like not the thing that's been sitting under the case at Starbucks where it, it kind of looks like maybe that piece of banana nut bread might be all right, but then you get it and it's really not that great. Anybody else experienced paying five bucks for a stale piece of bread before? Okay. He, that's the furthest thing that he wants us to imagine. We need to imagine something many of us might not have ever even experienced, that fresh-baked, out-of-the-oven, Grandma's homemade bread that when you cut a slice into it, you that steam comes out. Can you see it? Can you smell it? Maybe a little bit. Am I making everybody hungry? This is like the wrong thing to say before lunchtime. You got some leftovers. Yeah, there you go. We got leftover communion bread. Listen, there's a reason I want to slow down and give this visual. Jesus used these images to help us grasp what He was trying to say. He came to share good news. He came to share good stuff. You know, two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Jesus said, I'm the true vine. He says, I want you to stay connected to me for your very life. And he said, what I'm going to pour into you is my love. Abide in my love. That was the message that he was communicating. And you know, we looked at the Ephesian church and the letter to the Ephesians and they were doing all the work. They had it right. They were working hard. They were faithful, but they lost sight of the fact that God wanted to pour out his amazing love into their life. And so Jesus said, look, just look at that tree over there. And the way that you see those branches thriving and producing life, producing leaves, producing fruit, it's because they're connected to the source. They're connected to the vine. They're connected to the tree. You be like that with me. And then last week, we looked at a church, the church in Smyrna, who were struggling, man, they were suffering Trials, tribulation, persecution, life was hard. I mean, maybe it's just me, but I I have seasons like that where it's just, God, am I ever going to get out of this rut? And Jesus said, I want you to see something. I'm the resurrection and the life. I make dead things become alive again. And when I make them that way, they stay that way forever. They stay that way forever. And so have hope in the hard, difficult season. And now this morning, we're going to be looking at a church in a town called Pergamum. And and this church was in an interesting spot. It said that their town where they lived, it was was the throne of Satan was there. It goes on later in the same passage, and it said that Satan dwelt there. And God acknowledged that some of them remained faithful and steadfast, even in persecution. But many of the church, he said, we're compromising. And he pointed out some areas that we're going to look at. But, but to the church, to the person that finds ourselves in the place, in a culture where Satan dwells, where it's familiar territory to him, where it would be easy to go with the flow of our culture, to compromise some things. Jesus says, I've got something really good for you. It's the real deal. It's not, it's not, False bread. It's not something that looks like it's going to be wonderful and then you take a bite and it leaves your mouth dry and dissatisfied. He said, I've got the best bread for you. And it's going to satisfy, in fact, it's going to satisfy you forever. So we're going to take a couple minutes and look at the Gospel of John, chapter six. I would highly recommend, especially because I'm going to trim a little bit here as we go, I would highly recommend that you spend some time just reading through John, chapter six and see this interaction that Jesus was having with people who, some of them were intrigued by him, some of them were committed followers, some of them were skeptics, some of them were hungry. And so they're having this interaction with Jesus. And let's unpack this a bit. So to give you some context in John chapter 6, How many of you guys are familiar with the story where Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish? You remember that story? And he multiplies the bread. Okay, that story had just happened the day before. So all these thousands of people were gathered. Jesus fed all of them. Then in the middle of the night, he crosses the sea there and he walks on water. How cool must that have been to see that? He walks on water. So these people all wake up the next morning, they're like, man, This guy was talking to us yesterday, and he kind of made bread out of nothing, out of thin air. We got to hang out with him some more. And so they're looking everywhere, and they can't find him, and they realize he's gone on to the other side. They don't know how he got there. And they track him down, and then this conversation takes place. And so we're going to pick this up in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 25. Scripture says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Seems like a really harmless question. Jesus tends to do this annoying thing, in case you've never noticed this in your own personal life, where he, he answers the questions you didn't really ask. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one that's experienced it. Have you ever experienced that, where I'm asking him about this, and he's like, mm, I'm going to talk to you about what's really going on over here. And so this is another example of that. So they ask him a simple question. How'd you get here? And Jesus answered them, And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who has sent whom he has sent. Two things happen here. Number one, Jesus identifies the real issue going on. They got some food the day before and they're back for more. That's what they really want. They're, they're looking for satisfaction. They're looking to have their next immediate need get met. And so Jesus says, listen, I want you to learn something here. I fed you that. To point you to something that lasts, that's sustainable, the bread that I give that's going to last a really long time. And immediately look where their mind goes. Do they say, okay, great. We'll take it. They say, no. How do we work for it? How do we work for it? They immediately go into a mentality of how do I work hard to get this thing from God? How quickly we do that. Jesus shows up with good news and we figure out a way to make it bad news again. His amazing grace is available, awesome. Now let me get to work and get on that treadmill to earn it, to to show him how thankful I am, to do the stuff. How quickly we leap to getting to work for the thing Jesus says, you you can't even work for this. Even if you wanted to, you cannot work for this. I wanna give it to you. And so he says simply, this is the work, believe in me. Believe this good news that I'm here to share. And so they hear that and they go, okay, great, we will. Unfortunately not. Verse 30, the next verse. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? That's interesting. Instead of just receiving the gift, well, why don't you prove that you are who you say you are? Prove that you can do this. Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. They're like, all right, we did it. We got Jesus back on track. We got him back on track. For a minute there, he was talking about this weird veg stuff. So we kind of, we wanted to remind about that manna thing. Like Jesus, this has happened before, you know, where God's people got bread and they were just kind of fed and taken care of. Remember back when we were wandering in the wilderness and every day we woke up and that manna was just there. I mean, that was the best. Could could you do that? And so Jesus engages and talks with them about manna. And he says, well, that really came from God, not from Moses. They're like, awesome, great, we'll take it. Sounds good. Came from God. Great. Give it to us. You know, they're thinking we've got him back on track. We got him back in the mode of giving us bread. And then Jesus says this John 6, 35. This is our our key verse this morning. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Is that good news? Have you received that good news from Jesus? Or let me ask it a different way. In our normal everyday life, do we find ourselves really satisfied in what Jesus has given us? Or do we find ourselves hungering and thirsting regularly? I can only speak for myself. But all too often, this verse does not feel real to me. I have a hard time believing it, trusting that he, He's meeting all of my needs, that I am fully satisfied in Him. I find myself constantly hungering and thirsting for something I don't quite have yet. And the Jews, like, they're having a hard time receiving this good news. He's saying, listen, you don't have to work for it. Just receive it. And he's saying, hey, I'm not talking about physical bread. I'm talking about something deeper that will satisfy the deepest longings and desires of your heart. All the things in this life you're craving for, having a sense of of real identity, knowing why I'm here, what my purpose is, seeing God fulfill even in the midst of incredible difficulty, like all those strivings. He's saying, I want to offer you deep satisfaction. Just trust me, just receive it. And they can't. And so because they can't receive this word, they begin to resist him. They begin to push back on him. And so then in verse 41, I'm skipping down a little bit says the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, isn't this just Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? Now, isn't this interesting? They just saw the miracle the day before and they were amazed. And so they chased him down because they thought he had something awesome to offer. Now that he's offering them something truly wonderful, and they can't receive that message, do you hear what they're doing? They're discrediting the messenger. They're discrediting the messenger. We've gotta be very careful. When God is trying to communicate a message to us that we don't like, there is something in our human nature that then moves to discredit the messenger because then I don't have to receive the message. If that person isn't trustworthy, if their opinion isn't valid, then I don't have to listen to what they just said. I can brush it off. I can ignore it. I can discredit. This is what Satan was up to in the garden. Did he really say, can you really trust him? Isn't he withholding something from you? He attacks. He accuses. He gets us to question God's love. But Jesus came to give us a real living in the flesh picture of God's incredible love. He so said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God loves you. He's crazy about you. And there is a life that he has for you that is satisfying. Not perfect. Satisfying. Satisfying. Refreshing. You'll never be hungry. You'll never truly thirst. This is what he offers. And so... The conversation goes on and Jesus is sharing with them, like, guys, I'm talking about something spiritual here. I'm not talking about physical bread for you to eat. I'm talking about eternal life. I'm talking about a sense of deep satisfaction, knowing that everything's gonna be all right, that you don't even have to fear death. I'm paraphrasing some of the things he began to unpack in the following verses. And and in the midst of this, he begins to talk with them about this manna that they brought up. And he says, listen, Your forefathers ate that manna and they died in the wilderness. The very best that they could taste, experience, receive on this planet. You know how they felt about that manna? Anybody remember the story? They got sick of it. Like this is bread from heaven. I can't imagine what that tastes like. I'm guessing it was pretty amazing. This is bread from heaven and they got sick of it. They were tired of it, they were annoyed by it. And eventually they died. They tasted the best that this world had to offer and they they died. And Jesus is saying, I'm talking about something beyond that. I'm talking about bread that satisfies eternally and it's available to you. And I can't help but remember the words that Jesus spoke to Satan when he was being tempted himself, when he was hungry and fasting in the desert. And the first temptation was take this stone and turn it into bread. And Jesus quoted a scripture. And I want to read to you the passage from Deuteronomy that he was quoting. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Moses is reminding the people about their experience in the desert and the manna that God gave and the lesson that God was trying to teach them. He said, God humbled you and let you hunger. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but word that comes from the mouth of God. God wants us to understand that he's designed us for a certain kind of food. It's the food that comes from him. It's the life that he offers. And Jesus said, that's why I'm here, to give you this. And so Jesus is unpacking this. I'm the bread of life. These people are just getting more and more irritated and frustrated. And so finally, we come to kind of the end of this debate with Jesus. And in John chapter 6, verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're like, he's just telling us we're going to literally physically eat him. This makes no sense. In verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I mean, can't you almost hear Jesus just saying, Okay, fine. You're stuck in the physical realm, fine. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. That's what I'm saying. Maybe it's my own sarcastic sense of humor. But like, I just, I feel like maybe there was just a little subtle sarcasm there. I probably shouldn't project that onto Jesus. That's my own flesh. But listen, even in that statement, he's speaking truth. What did we just do this morning? He's already saying in advance what he's going to do. My body is going to be broken for you. My blood is going to be poured out for you. And that is where your life will be found. You'll find forgiveness. You'll find freedom. You'll find satisfaction in having peace with God. You'll be able to face the troubles and trials and difficulties of this world knowing not only am I with you in the midst of it, but there's eternal life on the other side of this. We win. There's victory. That's the hope of this gospel. That's the bread that Jesus has for us. He's saying, I can be with you throughout each day that you face, sustaining you, giving you just what you need to be satisfied, come what may. And so we can fast forward ahead a little bit after Jesus has died and risen again and the church has been established and there's like real people believing that he rose again. And they're telling each other about it. And they're celebrating Jesus. They're worshiping him. And they're living in these pagan towns. They're living in a culture that is the furthest thing from Jesus. And so he writes a letter to this church established in this community. The town's called Pergamum. Do we love the little, little thing? That's the right one. All right. Jesus writes a letter through John, the same guy that wrote the Gospel of John, to this church called Pergamum. Let me give you just a couple little tidbits about this town to give us a sense of the culture of the people Living there. Pergamum is kind of the last of our. Oh, that's the wrong one. Oops. That's all right. Never mind. <laughs> Ignore that map. There are three towns in succession that kind of go up the coast on the western coast of Turkey. And we looked at Ephesus our first week. If we move north a little bit, we saw Smyrna. Pergamum is the last of the towns that are on the coast and it's inland a little bit. It's not actually right on the water. And And so one of the reasons over time it began to fade in prominence, it was a really prominent town, and then Ephesus and Smyrna kind of surpassed it was because they were coastal towns and because of the trade routes. And so Pergamum had this culture. They had this renown. In fact, um, they had the second largest library in the time of the Greek Empire. The second largest library. That library is the Library of Pergamum. In fact, it was such an incredible library. It was believed to have over 200,000 volumes. Mark Anthony gave this library to Cleopatra as a wedding present. That's this town of Pergamum. They also had a rich culture. Theater was big there. We have, I think we've got a little picture of this. We got a picture of the theater, Jacob? Look at that. How cool is that? Look how steep it is. It's one of the steepest theaters in the ancient world. They believe it could seat about 10,000 people in that theater. And because of the the steepness to it, like a whisper on stage could be heard in the top row, the way the sound carried. This is a town that had a a rich culture, but the culture was rooted in paganism. Their arts, their feasts, they all celebrated these pagan gods and there were bizarre, strange rituals that they were involved in. And so in the midst of this rich culture, the city was actually slowly in decline. And by trying to curry favor with Rome, they jumped on the bandwagon of persecuting Christians. So this was an incredibly difficult town to be a believer in. You basically had two choices. You could take a strong stand for your faith at the risk of being persecuted, or you could begin to blend in with the culture. And many of them began to blend in with the culture. Now, this probably doesn't sound familiar to us at all in any way, living in our country in our day. They they blended into the culture. And so we're just going to read through this letter that Jesus wrote to them and just make a couple observations, all right? So Jesus writes this letter, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword... I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And notice what they did. That they might eat food sacrificed to idols, They're participating in some of the cultural wickedness. They practice sexual immorality. And so also, there are some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, there's some debate about, is that teaching connected with the the previous sentence, or is this something in addition to it? I will just simply say, they were believing false teachings, whatever that is. I mean, we could put those in about three categories— A false teaching is when we add something to the gospel that doesn't belong there, often by heaping burdens on people that God did not intend. A false teaching could be removing something from the gospel, removing a piece that we don't like. Or the most devious is when a portion of the gospel is taken and it's just twisted. We bend the meaning a little bit and people stumble and fall into teaching that's harmful. Something added, something removed, Something twisted. The bottom line is these people, um, many of them were just blending in with the culture of the day. A watered down Christianity that was palatable in that culture. Sexual immorality, like it's just the norm, so let's just go with the flow. Watching things, doing things. Well, I don't do this, but I mean, I, I'll kind of watch a movie with this. You know, I don't, I don't know what our version of that would be. I don't know what your personal version of that might be, but there is a pull to blend in with our culture, and this church struggled with that. And yet Jesus offered them something as we're about to see. He offered them himself and his word, and he gave two pictures. He's gonna give the picture of bread that we already looked at, and there's another description of God's word that's given in the scripture. It was already kind of hinted at in verse 12. In verse 16, he says, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. I mean, you talk about special You talk about having value, having meaning to God. God's saying, you are so precious to me. I've got a name for you nobody else even knows. And it's written on something rock solid, a stone that cannot be shaken. And if you'll hold on, if you'll be one of the faithful few that don't compromise, that's how you're going to get a taste of the manna that I have for you. When you trust me and what I offer to be the good life, Jesus offers something. God's word offers something, a good life for us to experience and enjoy in him. Or will I settle for the compromise that this world offers? Because Jesus loves us, he gives us an opportunity to change. It mentions twice in this passage, this idea of a sword. It's the sword of the spirit. The scripture tells us that's God's word. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we get a little description of how God's word works like a sword. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joint, and concerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's sword will operate in our life. If we invite it, it'll operate like a surgeon's knife to cleanse, to purify, to change, to root out things that need to go. So what's what's our application here? What's our application? Jesus is offering really good news. He's offering really good news. Many of us in this room, you're going, hey, Jake, I've I've said yes to the bread of life. I mean, I, I meant what we just did. I'm remembering Jesus and the eternal life I have in him. That's awesome. Absolutely. Jesus offered us the ability to get tastes of that throughout our daily walk with him here and now. Scripture tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good, not mediocre, not okay, not will get by. The life he has for us tastes good. And so I don't, I don't know what the specific application for you may be, but I would encourage, encourage all of us to maybe just consider, God, are there any areas where I've been trying to satisfy myself with what's physical and tangible here and now in place of what you offer. God, am I just chasing around some physical element of bread that can give me a brief moment of satisfaction as opposed to coming to you and finding my satisfaction in the life you offer? So I'd encourage you just to reflect and be aware that if that is you, if there is a place like that, Invite Him to come with the sword of the Spirit to root that out, to cut it out. He forgives. When we repent, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from some of our unrighteousness, the stuff that's not super bad, all of it, all of it, and get a fresh start with Him. And then the the promise, manna, the bread that sustains. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for, um, for a good meal on the week of Thanksgiving that reminds us of the, the wonderful bounty that's available at your table, that satisfies fully, that never runs dry. Jesus, thank you that we get tastes of that here in this life now. God, we get tastes of the abundant life that's available in you each day. God, thank you that you give us bread that can sustain us in a culture where Satan dwells and a culture where he's comfortable and where it would be easy to just blend in. God, I pray that, that we would all have a willingness to be honest and open with you. God, give us a sense of humility to invite you to come. Lord, if there's, if there's anything you would speak to us, We don't need somebody else to tell us, God, is there something you would put your finger on to say, hey, I'm calling you to repent right there. You've compromised. You've let your guard down. You've begun to search for satisfaction somewhere apart from me. And it doesn't work. God, in your love for us, you tell us it doesn't work. And you invite us instead to the life that we have in you that satisfies. Jesus, thank you that you're the bread of life. I pray that me and my friends would taste and see that you are good. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. Amen.